Welcome to Conversation Pace. I'm your host, Brian Rossetti. In episode 36, I spoke with Dylan Bellis, a competitive marathoner and coach based in Flagstaff, Arizona. When I spoke with Dylan, he was fresh off his most recent Olympic trials qualifier in Houston. He finished sixth American in 217.26. Did a deep dive in his preparation and training in general. Now he plans to reach his goal of sub 215. I enjoyed talking with Dylan. He's one of the most highly rated coaches on our app and you understand why pretty quickly. Check out the link in our profile and connect directly with Dylan on Auto too. Without further ado, here's Dylan Bellis. Dylan, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? How you feeling? Uh, good. Not, not too, not too bad. Still recovering a bit, having some problems getting up and down the stairs, but otherwise mentally refreshed. So it happens to uh, competitive elite runners as well, huh? The, the stair walking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's been, I have made every noise that you could possibly think of getting out of the chairs, getting out of bed, going down, up and down stairs. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's been a real struggle, but, uh, worth it. Yeah. So for those who don't know, I'll just kind of report it here, but Houston marathon two seventeen twenty six, um, sixth American, correct? Yep. That is correct. And officially Olympic trials qualifying, correct? That is correct as well. That's awesome, man. So they lowered the standard and um, that didn't affect you at all. Fortunately, uh, there was a moment with about two miles to go where I wasn't quite sure if I was going to be able to make it there in time. And at that point in the race, your mind is no longer able to do functional math anymore. And all I could think of was I'm going to cross that line and it's going to be 218 and change. And my body was failing so badly at that point that I had no clue until I rounded the corner and I could see the clock. And fortunately for me, it was a solid half a second under. Wow. So what was the goal? I mean, were you shooting to get the qualifier this early at Houston? Was that part of the plan for a while or did this come together um, more recently? Yeah, so I originally had planned on running the New York City Marathon in November, and I did show up and I just had as bad of a day as you could ever possibly have. And I unfortunately ended up stepping off the course at 19 miles. So I recovered from that and was really just upset, um, you know, and trying to think how could I best salvage somewhat of my fitness and knowing then that the the trial standards they came out sometime in December, knowing that they would open up in January. I wanted to just try to ride out my training and ride out my fitness and try to hit that qualifier as early as possible so that I could just put a nice bow on the season and take a bit of a break from running marathons for a while. But yeah, I would when I going into the race, my goal was was to run significantly faster. Uh, but the way that the race played out, and ultimately how I felt with two or three miles to go, simply just getting under the standard ended up being that sole goal on the day. But you know, in retrospect, it's always it's always easy to go back and to think, what could I have done? You know, what did I do wrong? Um, but yeah, I'm happy that I 
I got the result that I did, but always wanting more and, you know, believe that I am you know, capable of much more myself. Yeah. Yeah. So of course, of course, not surprised to hear that. Um, so this was really a turn of events. I mean, if not for New York, let's say things went well in New York. Um, does Houston happen or no? I don't believe so. I was, I started training in January of last year. I was, I had a foot surgery in December. And so I took some time off and I was pretty much consistently training. I didn't have a period of time that I, I took off of training from, from January until November. So I, I really wanted to, to, to end on a high note in, in New York city. But I think unfortunately, because it was just a bit on a downswing, I would say in, in preparation for that race last month or so workouts were no longer trending up. They were kind of starting to trend downwards. So I think I was kind of riding the line between too much and, you know, just enough to get to the race. So ideally I wanted to go to New York city and, and to show up there and, and call it a nice, uh, wrap on the year and enjoy the holidays, but it didn't go that way. So I had to rethink some things and make a decision that I thought was going to be best for me. So what happened in New York? Was it just a bad day? Was it injury? What was the cause of you know dropping out? Sure. So the the month prior, I was just feeling incredibly bad, terrible in training. Sometimes this happens, you know, when you're preparing and you're you're doing a lot of heavy volume, heavy intensity, preparing for a marathon, and you might have weeks, um, sometimes even a month where Things are going well, but they they don't feel great. They're um, incredibly challenging to hit your paces. Um, daily energy is not that great. And I think running, rolling into New York City Marathon, I was in that downswing. I was sort of in a hole, if you will, and I never really climbed out of it. And then on race day, there's New York City changed things up this year. They allowed uh, the elite field to start. I can't remember exactly. It was it was a few minutes at least before the next wave of runners, and I was in that next wave of runners, um, and it was just an odd situation to where I wasn't quite fast enough to get into the elite field, but I had uh, you know close to ten minutes faster than the next person in my wave. So I spent you know one of the biggest marathons in the world, uh, one of the most crowded, you know, exciting places to run and to race. Um, I spent 19 miles completely by myself and, you know, it was a combination between going into the race, feeling really bad already and just mentally throwing in the towel, which is something that I've struggled with in the past and something that I've always had to do a little extra work with. So no injury, no anything, but more so just, it wasn't my day. And I, I cut things off before it got really nasty out there. Wow. I, I have to follow up on that. So you're a, 216 your PR is what 216.59 that's correct and you couldn't get a run at New York City like what did you was was it just because that result was too far in the past or they rejected uh, have enough spots was it COVID related I mean I don't I'm not following that's crazy yeah I'm actually not sure I, I contacted the elite director and they they just said that um, they weren't unable to accommodate me into the elite field. 
Um, and I had reached out a couple of times and yeah, it just, it just didn't work out unfortunately, but they did say that they would save me a spot for the development program. But by that point in time, I was too late to sign up for the race. So I actually had help from some of my friends and some of my runners who helped me get in through a charity. So I actually entered, uh, I entered the New York city marathon representing the Michael J. Fox foundation. Wow. Well, it's nice to hear that you ended up getting to support a, a great charity, but that's, wow. I'm surprised, man. So that was a big part of it. You're weaving in and out of people that, I mean, literally we spent how much time doing that until you kind of broke through. Well, I start, I did start at the front. Um, so I, I did have, I was at the very front of the line. So they sent the elite women out. I can't remember exactly how long it was maybe 15 or 20 minutes before. And then they sent the men five or six minutes. So by the time my gun went off, they were well over a mile down the road. And so I had empty streets. Um, I had the most odd New York city marathon experience. I think that anyone's ever experienced it was it was incredible just because you know when when you're running down the road and it's just you and you know six seven minutes ahead of you there's runners and four or five or six minutes behind you there's runners when there's just one runner out there people aren't really cheering they're not really you know they don't really they don't really know what's going on you know did you fall off the elite pack are you supposed right. to be there um you just hop in <laughs> Yeah. yeah I mean, it seemed like it too. Um, I, I got some press before the race cause I was wearing a New York Yankees hat and a cutoff t-shirt. So I think a lot of people may have, they may have believed that I was just, um, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't actually in the race. So it was an odd experience, but it, it was, it was a good one. I think New York city has always, um, kind of been a dream of mine and it, you know, it didn't work out, but there'll be another day for it. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So back to Houston, you said the wheels were coming off a little bit, um, towards the end. What was your split at the half? I didn't see that actually. On the yeah. Yeah. That's fun. It's, it's interesting that you, that you've noted that too, because my, my family and, and my friends, they all thought that I dropped out because mm. I didn't have a split at the half marathon for some reason. It was the only split and the only person in that pack who didn't get a split at half, which I have no clue why. But I went through the half marathon in 108.33. And so I was a little slower than I would have liked to be, but I made a decision pretty early on because, again, I wasn't in the elite field for Houston Marathon either. Um, so I, the gun went off, and I think I crossed the – by the time I crossed the start line, there was already six or seven seconds, no, between six and eight seconds that had already passed. So I didn't make it past the, the mile marker until about five, five thirty, five thirty-five a mile. And I don't actually remember catching, uh, Kira, the lead woman. Uh, it, it had to have been almost five or six miles. It was, it was, it was quite a long time. Um, at least it felt like it. But I went through 10833. Um, and I was with the, a pack of guys who were just trying to qualify the for the Olympic trials. And I made a decision pretty early on that because I was never going to be able to catch the guys that ideally I wanted to run with. Um, I didn't want to be in no man's land because there was a huge stretch where the wind was 
um, right in your face from about nine until 18 miles. Wow. So pretty even, but you're saying a little bit slower than you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. Um, Where but, was your head at that, at that point? Like, is that top, obviously in a marathon, things aren't going to plan. You still got halfway to go. Um, how are you feeling at that point though? I was really comfortable. I was feeling really confident. Um, the effort felt really smooth and I was really in my head. I was, I just kept thinking to myself, just get to 18 miles. You're going to make a right-hand turn and you're going to have a gentle rolling down hill for a little bit and a tailwind. And so I was really working with that group of runners, just staying relaxed. Um, and in my head, I was thinking that I was really going to be able to have a strong back half of the race. What was the weather? What was the temperature? I think it, the, the temperature was almost as good as it could be. I think it was around 40 degrees. Wow. The winds were between 10 and 15 miles an hour and some gusts here and there. Um, it wasn't too much of a factor, but there is this long stretch where you're running into a, a headwind, which is one of the reasons why I really wanted to run with that group too, because it really does make it that much easier to, to kind of tuck in and you know not have to face it uh, entirely yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the goal coming in? Did you think you could set a PR? Is that what you were kind of gunning for? Or you felt like fitness was there, it was possible, but was it just to get the, the trials qualifier and, and see what happened? Yeah. Originally I wanted to run between two fourteen thirty and two fifteen thirty. I felt like just by my workouts and the progression of things and comparison to some of my prior marathons and you know how ready I was for them. I thought that this time around I was in the best shape that I've ever been in. And but with that in my head, I also didn't want to take too much of a risk because I didn't want to have to wait, you know, another six or nine months to hit that qualifying standard. While it's to me it, it wasn't an intimidating standard for me to hit it's still a weight on your shoulders because you still have to go out there and run a marathon no matter what it's 26.2 miles and you never know exactly what's going to happen especially as you get later into the race between you know, 20 and 26 so i believed that i could have run a lot faster um going into it you know it didn't work out that way unfortunately but I think that given the situation, I was glad that I was able to come out of it with a standard. And that was something that you got to be happy with no matter what, because that is a big burden off, off of me. And now next time that I go and run another marathon, I can kind of take that risk and not have to, to worry about potential repercussions that happen in this later stage of the race, if that happens. That's great. No, I like how you're looking at that. That's awesome. Um, so talk a little bit about your training. One thing that stood out from what you said earlier is that you've, you hit some rough patches, which you said are inevitable. Um, so I'm curious for a guy like you, is it inevitable when you're training at such a high volume? So I want to get into that. Or do you also see it? Does, I think you're working with Jay Balkum right now. Is, is he your coach? Yep, that's correct. That's great. Um, so curious. So just to, again, to, to finish the question, is it partly inevitable, but do you guys also look at it as 
what else is going on? I'm constantly talking to athletes about finding that that work life, you know, training balance. That yeah, you might need to train a little bit more based on your goal, but is it the right balance? Does it sort of put you over the edge where maybe you lose consistency, quality over time? So curious what you think about that and and how you approach it. Yeah. The way Jay and I work together, it's the way that the shape of the training is, is, is very sustainable. I believe that the way that we do things and never often, it doesn't push you to the point to where you feel like you're riding the line, like you're on the edge of an injury or burnout or whatnot. The way that he shapes it and writes training for me, which works really well for me is this long, just progressive or consistent progression in training. A lot of times it's, it's very generalized. We, we work on a little bit of everything constantly trying to make sure that we're not just focused on one thing. So like, you know, we talk in terms of the actual workouts themselves or the style of them. I might have a lot of threshold or marathon work, but I'm also still making sure that I'm working on my speed. So I'm doing I pace and I'm doing our pace work as well at different, um, different, uh, percentages or uh, of my training throughout a training cycle. And so we, we focus on keeping volume relatively high all year long. And then the specificity of the training tends to progress upwards as the race gets closer. But the way that we've done things, it does allow me to, Hey, I, I allows me to, to, to work on something every part of the year, but it also allows me to extend that training out until, you know, I really wanted to run a marathon. Um, it's a safer version of training, I believe. I think it works well for me. It's kept me injury free for quite a long time. And it allows me to race to what I believe is, you know, my current potential. But even with that, we have other life stresses. So running is, is one stress, of course. There's work, there's family life, there's a lot of other things that come into play. And, you know, you might be doing on paper, everything might seem like it's completely perfect that, you know, you, you're getting enough rest and you're training appropriately. You're not stressed out. Um, but unfortunately the body reacts in different ways, at different periods of time. And I always find that there are always points in time where you, you dig yourself into a little bit of a hole. And it's important to be aware of this because there is, you might dig yourself into a hole, but there's a difference between, Hey, I'm, I'm. I'm digging myself so far into a hole that I'll never get out of it. And what's, what's going to lead, this is going to lead to is, is burnout or, or injury, um, you know, or declination in performance, or it's just, Hey, like things are a little bit harder right now. And like, if I just kind of stick this through, I know that there's going to be another side of that. And so I think leading into New York city, I was definitely into that. I was in that hole and I just, I, I wasn't unable to climb out of it in the right, at the right time. Um, and so going into New York city, that was just, uh, that's, that's kind of where I found myself. And, you know, unfortunately that's not the best for confidence and yeah. And it leads to a, a tough race. You know, it's hard to go into a race feeling that way. Well, and there's a balance too, especially for athletes like yourself, I think too, where if you under train a little bit, maybe things are going well, you don't hit those ruts, those rough patches. 
and I could see confidence, you know, being high, but then that's sort of countered by the fact that you've got this history of high volume and expectation. If I want to run 214, 215, I've got to be able to put in X amount of work. And if you don't, I'm sure that hurts your confidence too. So it's kind of like always walking that, that fine line, I can imagine. It is. It is. Yeah. Jay and I talked over the summer and I, I got to spend quite a bit of time at sea level um, visiting my family and my girlfriend's family. And it was a great time to really take advantage of some training. And unfortunately things didn't go that way. You know, we weren't able to get in the, the volume that we believed would, uh, would support that goal. And so, you know, looking back into New York City, it was, there was probably an imbalance between the intensity of my own workouts and, the, and specifically the volume of that intensity in relationship to the volume of running I was doing. So, you know, ideally, I would be running much more supportive volume to help essentially increase the capacity and, you know, decrease the how hard that work is just because I had this great base, this great foundation to really support what it's going to be like to run uh, a marathon. And unfortunately I, I ran into some roadblocks and I was probably doing way too much volume of intensity within my training, which led to some underperformances. Um, and ultimately it, it led to those workouts becoming too much. It was just the percentages, the ratio was significantly off. What, so what volume are we talking about? Weekly mileage leading up to Houston. And then how does that compare or differ from leading up to when you set your PR, which was what about 30 seconds faster? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. So leading up to Houston, I did take a break. I took not a really big break, but I took five days off after New York city just to reset. And then that following week I took, um, I ran mostly easy that, that next week, but I took some time and I sat down and I was started thinking what pieces were missing. And I did believe it was the volume and the things. So between New York city and Houston, I built myself up and I maxed out at 120. I think it was three weeks before race day. And at that time, 120 was a lot of mileage. That's the most that I've ever run. And the week before that was one around 115, which was also the most that I've ever run. Um, so the goal was really just to, to log more aerobic volume and then two good workouts a week. And most of them were some mix of uh, threshold-based fartleks or intervals and some type of marathon-based, same thing, fartlek or longer intervals. And so at that point, it was just 100% specific to the marathon. I didn't do too much in terms of these, you know, supporting the general speed of things. Um, instead, I was more focused on just, hey, we're going to try to run this marathon as quickly as possible. We've got six weeks to prepare. And so I really emphasized the volume a lot more because prior to New York City, I was struggling to get that volume much, you know, too much over 90 just because of little hiccups along the way. So it was a bit of a risk knowing that, hey, I was going to be going into some uncharted territory, but with, with my history and you know, knowing that, hey, I'll be able to handle this volume as long as I appropriately you know, run the, those, the easy runs nice and easy, that I'm not overdoing it on the harder 
runs, just making sure that I'm taking care of myself as much as possible. And I think I thought that I was going to get the benefits from that. And I do believe that I did. In preparation for Frankfurt, which was in 2019, so I ran 21659. Um, during that, uh, the, in preparation for that race, was I had a lot more weeks that were just consistently over 100 miles a week. And actually, my workouts were, they weren't better than this time around. And that's fine. You know, I don't think that's, I think that's just relative to where you are. And, you know, sometimes you perform better, even though your, your workouts aren't going as well um, or as fast. But I think it was really just the day that was different. You know, I, I think that in Frankfurt, I had a better day and went out a little bit faster. Um, and I really just kind of went for it. I had, I had just, I qualified for the Olympic trials um, nearly a year before that race. And so I really was just putting everything out there. Um, interesting, interestingly enough, I actually fell at mile 16 and I broke my arm in the middle of that race. Um, I still have a bit of a bump on the, the side of my, my arm. Um, yeah, yeah. In Frankfurt. Um, it was, it's actually really embarrassing. I went to go grab my water bottles at the back corner of the table. And so as I went to go grab it, I tripped over my feet and I slid head first over the, the water bottle table. And I, again, I wasn't in Lee field. I was in the, um, it was like a sub Lee field. And so there were probably 70 bottles on this big table. And, uh, <laughs> I completely just wiped them out and I fell and I, you know, I, it was, I, it was really a split decision. I didn't really think about it and I just kept going, but, um, yeah, after the race, I got looked at and I had a fracture on the side of my arm. Unreal. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. But anyways, um, yeah, the training, the training itself wasn't, wasn't so different. Um, I'd say everything was a little bit more elevated this year. I'm a bit older. I've been more seasoned. I, the training's progressed. Um, you know, sometimes the races just don't, they don't always, they're not, they're not all the same. They don't always equal out or, you know, compare to what you did prior to that. Yeah, no, of course. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that high volume it sounds like you've been a high volume guy for a while. Um, you've been running at a high level for marathons, so that makes sense. Um, what insights can we get from you in terms of your ability to withstand it? You've been doing it for several years now. What tricks, what have you learned that helps sustain you? Um, and I also wanna hear how that kind of translates to your approach when you're working with recreational, recreational athletes too. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. And I'd like to preface this to say that there are, there are some runners that I, and coaches that I look up to who, you know, they make, they make what I do and the volume that I do look small. And, you know, I think there's always something to, to work towards there, but I do think our, our sport is so heavily reliant on being aerobically efficient and aerobically strong. And knowing this, we can apply that to almost every longer distance. And there's, of course, there's a point of diminishing returns. And that's something that I've, I've definitely discovered, especially as I was, I was younger and experimenting with running more volume. I probably ran into dead ends you know, four or five different times by just overdoing it with a lot of people that I work with too, is, you know, they're 
most of the runners that I work with, they're not afraid to, to really push that limit. And I think sometimes that we, we find sometimes really great things come from pushing those limits, but during, during the point when you push those limits, it's just, it's the wrong, it's the wrong time. And so for myself, I've run into this roadblock, the, the injuries, the burnout by trying to just do too much. Um, and a lot of times it's mixed in with not just doing too much in terms of volume, it's doing that volume too intensely, having too many workouts built into a plan, running my easy days way too quickly. I found that, you know, I'm no longer an 18 year old kid. Like I can't just get away with running five fifty or six minute pace per mile anymore. Like most of my runs are relatively slow. I think, um, in, com- in comparison, I think you take my marathon time and you know, you, you take my easy run pace and it's probably two, two and a half minutes slower, sometimes even, you know, slower than that. And I think this helps me still get that really strong aerobic effect, you know, that fat burning capacity, the, the ability to expand my aerobic foundation, if you will. And wait, yeah, hold, hold up, hold on a second there. Cause I want to, uh, that's a great point. So if you punch in your marathon time, it's a 73 point four V dot and the easy pace is six oh two to six forty. Right. That range. So this is a great point I want to make to our listeners. Um what on average, like in the last few weeks when you're going out for an easy run, um what are you hitting sometimes? Well I guess we should preface that with you were I'm assuming running at roughly seven thousand feet, right? Right. Right. And so, yeah, that has to be considered as well, because, you know, running at altitude is, is significantly different than running at sea level. And my pace will reflect that as well. I would say that on a day where if I don't have a workout or anything along those lines that surrounded it, so not the day before, um, you know, or a harder long run the day before or two days before that, I will likely be around seven minute pace. And I would say that for my days after my workouts, I usually try to keep those around 720 to 730. And sometimes I even have days where I'm running even a little bit slower than that, just depending on how I'm feeling. And it's appropriate. Like that is for me, that that ends up being easy for me, um, allows me to recover effectively. I try to emphasize my workouts and using those easy runs for for to support those workouts and support my overall development. And then I would say that for my long runs, those, those do typically, um, you know, you could almost consider that a, a workout, even if it's just, uh, you know, an easy long run, I, I will try to find myself closer into the middle of that range and really get that high, um, you know, highly aerobic stimulus there. But most of my volume is significantly slower than the, what uh, my VDOT score suggests. And I think that's important. What's important to note, especially for the roles that I'm, that I'm working with and, you know, for those who use the VDOT calculator, um, is that your easy day is a lot of times based on your, 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 how you feel that day. Um, because easy is, it, it means something different, um, on any given day, but yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it isn't. And I think it's interesting. I've actually had, um, not just, you know, using VDOT scores, but I've actually had VO2 max testing and, you know, they tell you like what, what pace you're the most efficient at and everything. But 
that's if you come in and you're completely rested and you're not in the middle of a really uh, significant or a thick training block. Yeah, see, well, with with the altitude effect, I think you're you're at the very slow end um, of the suggested range. Obviously, that's a suggested range, like you said. Jack would Jack would argue that some days you might feel easy, you know, on the front end of that range, and some days the same, you know, might feel the same effort on the back end. Right. Right. And it's okay to run slower. His concern is always your your biomechanics you know depending on how slowly you're going to run i mean i've paced individuals um that were much slower than like an easy run you know when i was much younger and then my low back was sore for several days you know, so I, <laughs> right experience that you know you can sometimes go too slowly and if it's affecting your mechanics and sure especially if you're out there for a long time doing it so um, but it's a great, I just want to, I can't stress that enough because we have so many athletes that are just, it's so common. I'm sure you experience this with your athletes. So I'm curious, what's a trick? How do you, is it just a matter of, okay, I've tried to convince them and, you know, I remind them, but there's only so much I can do, or do you have, um, good success with athletes and keeping them? to run easy is it just a matter of like really selling it to them early on yeah yeah i'd say it's a it's it's net positive i think most most people who um you know maybe they've hit some type of plateau in their running or you know they're really trying to take that next step um you know it if you think about it it doesn't make sense you know if if you tell someone that hey if you're going to run slower you'll actually run faster. It just logically, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> and, and what I find is that a lot of people who, you know, they're not running, they're not out there running for so long every day. You know, I, I know I have some runners who might only be running 15 or 20 miles a week. Um, and they can get away with running a little bit faster and, and they find themselves on the lower end of the, the, the VDOT scores and they feel good, you know, and that's normal for them. Um, and I will say that the more volume that people tend to run, the slower those easy days end up becoming just because, Hey, you need to take them for, um, you have to have them to, to recover from your workouts and to be able to consistently do that. Where I usually find concern is that if I'm seeing too small of a difference between what their easy pace is and what their marathon pace is, um, you know, that's, that's kind of when I start getting a little bit more concerned and saying, okay, Hey, maybe we need to. We need to focus on upping the quality a little bit of your, your harder days, but also bringing back those easier days so that they become more supportive. It feels though sometimes we're running to people who they might be running a little bit too hard every single day. And because of that, they don't have the same room to, to grow and to, to, to develop, especially with the faster workouts. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, most people are are really nice and, and trusting of me of that. And, um, you know, some, most of us will, will figure that out regardless trial through trial and error. Um, I think at some point we always have to look back on our training and think, what could we do differently? And now more than ever taking the easy days, easy has become more accepted. Um, and I think that we're finding a lot more value in it and seeing it's, uh, it's role in our training. So 
I think, and, and if we go and look at some of the best runners in the world, you'll, you'll see that a lot of their easy days are easy. And what I'll tell people is that, Hey, like start your runs off really, really slow. Like give yourself a couple miles to work into it. Like no hard breathing, fully conversational, like enjoy the run. And then, Hey, if you're feeling pretty good throughout, like gradually progress that by feel. And I find that most people will naturally run faster that way. Um, and I find that's a better way of getting yourself into the run, um, enjoying the run, but also kind of getting this wider range of what exactly is easy on that day. And even within those miles that you run. Mm, that's great. So you're in Flagstaff. You've been there for how long now? So I've been in Flagstaff since 2016. 2016. And how is it? Is it just more and more competitive athletes rolling in? Or do you guys actually not see that very often? Like, is it still, you know, where you can go days or weeks without really noticing too much happening in terms of the running scene there? Or is it just, is it completely blown up? Like, what's it like? Um, for someone who's maybe never been there, um, who might know a little bit about Flagstaff and, and how it's become such a, a running mecca, if you will. Sure. Um, so if you go to the right places, you will see tons and tons of uh, professionals from all over the world. And I think that's really cool. Um, it, it's, it's always, interesting. you know, I, I like living in a place where running is accepted running is somewhere like you can you can go and enjoy running and you see other people out there doing it as well we're a very active community i'm from rural north carolina running is not exactly accepted um on those back roads so um being in somewhere like flagstaff where the community is incredibly supportive is it means a lot to me and it's just a beautiful place to run but i'd say that if you go to the right places on the right days you go you know on a sunday long run on Lake Mary road, or you go to the track or the indoor facility on Tuesdays and Fridays, or you head down to Camp Verde, uh, which is about 45 minutes from here. Um, in the winter, you will see, you know, probably 10 to 50 people out there. And in, in the summers, we actually hold some group runs in town. And I think it wasn't uncommon for a Thursday morning bagel run to have 150 or 200 you know, high school, college, post-collegiate athletes out there. So it, it is really a cool community. Um, I will say that most people, you know, they, they all operate on their, on their different schedules. Um, and so some people link up and some people don't, but it's easy to both surround yourself with some of those incredible people and coaches, but also kind of get some, you know, enjoy some running in the woods and on the trails by yourself. That's great. What's your work-life balance right now? I, th I think you're doing some work with Run Flagstaff, you're doing some coaching, obviously you're putting in um, some big mileage. Um, so talk a little bit about how you, you know, manage your day and, and how that, you know, factors in. Sure. Um, so I'm the kind of person who I've always struggled to, to, to do anything that I didn't like to do. Um, and I think most people would agree with that. But what I mean by that is like, I always how to like, I never did well with working jobs that like I didn't passionately love. And like, I couldn't actually see how that was benefiting me. Um, just kind of like your, you know, get by types of jobs. And fortunately for myself, I've, I've been given a lot of opportunities to have, um, to have a job, to, to work with other people, to work for myself so that I could support 
the things that I want to do. And I've, I've always wanted to be a coach. I love working with people. Um, you know, before, before running, it was, it was swimming and before swimming, it was baseball and before baseball, you know, it's, it's a lot of different other avenues and sports that I've always wanted to be a part of. So working with other people, working with athletes has always been a dream of mine. I'm, I'm in love with running. It's, you know, it's everything that it's, it's my life. It's kind of what I I've surrounded myself with. It's a passion of mine and I love sharing that passion with other people. So, um, you know, with coaching, you know, that you're available, you know, whenever you're needed. And so, um, or whenever it's appropriate, I work with people who live in different countries. I live, I mean, you know, and people who work and most people live on like the East coast. So I'm, I'm more, a lot of times I, I wake up and it's, you know, I'll probably have 20 notifications by five or 6 AM in Arizona, you know, cause everyone's out and they're getting the run in at four or five o'clock in the morning in New York city. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, but I've been a lot better with, in terms of balance and I am working with the store. I'm doing some marketing with them and working with, um, creating an or, or uplifting our organization called team run Flagstaff. It's our community running group here in town, which we're trying to really push and get at that, um, you know, a greater involvement within our community. But I wasn't always really good with the balance itself. Before I met my my girlfriend Megan, I was it wasn't uncommon for me to to kind of just be camped out on my computer or working, you know, until nine or ten o'clock at night and just, you know, constantly just being available. So it's uh it's taking a lot more structure and discipline and time management on my end to to make sure that I'm prioritizing the things that need to be prioritized, especially non-related to running with my coaching. Uh, running is the easy part, you know, I can fit that in at any point in time, but, you know, making sure that I'm there for my athletes at the appropriate time that I'm spending my time in the right places is, um, I think a lot of, a lot of people can understand how, you know, you, it's, you gotta be able to maintain something that's outside of, outside of running and outside of your, your job as well. So I've been doing a lot more in terms of, uh, trying to be present in areas that, you know, maybe I wasn't so good at before. That's good. Presence, good word, man. Um, I'm impressed too because a lot of my athletes will often ask, like, "When are you, when are you gonna race?" You know, like, "What are you training for?" <laughs> and my response is always like, "Well, I, I don't have time. I'm I'm coaching all of you. You know, my energy goes in." They kind of laugh, and I'm like, sort of joking with them, but at the same time, it's kind of serious. Like, the more I've kind of delved into the coaching world i find it's hard to to strike that balance and i'm not training or racing competitively anymore i don't have those those goals and i'm an old man um dylan so um unlike yourself so i'm just curious do you feel that you know if your if your client base is getting up there or um are there moments where you're like, Ooh, I gotta, I gotta be careful in terms of juggling this now, or does it work well? I mean, do you thrive? I could see some, some coaches sort of thriving off that as well. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think, I think everyone has a limit to what is realistically reasonable for how much time can you give to each and every one of your athletes. And I, I that's that's a question that I ask myself too because I've I've grown my 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 coaching and the runners that I've worked with you know consistently over the last you know few years especially with VDOT and 
you know, I always have to wonder, like, people always ask, do you have room for one more? Do you have room for one more? And, you know, I, I don't know exactly where that, you know, I haven't reached that limit yet. You know, it's, um, but, you know, I, I understand that there is a limit because, you know, it's running as a, or coaching is a job that it's, it's being there for people. And if I get to the point to where, like, I feel as though I can't be there for, you know, those that I, that I care about because I have other things that are also in, very important in, in my life. And that's kind of when I had to make that, that draw that line because, um, you know, if, if I ever feel as though like I'm, I'm letting one of my, my runners down and I've, I've failed them as a coach, that's, that's like professionally, that's, that's one of the deepest cuts that I could possibly have. Like it's, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm over the belief that it's, Hey, if it's not working for the athlete, it's, it's my fault. You know, like that's, that's on me. Like I, I have to be the one that is there to support them and to figure, to figure it out. And so I, I do take it very, um, yeah, I take it very personally and just how much like I actually care and give into people, but I also have to, at one point I'm going to have to make a decision for myself on, Hey, what is, what's, where is that line drawn? You know, where, where I draw, where do I draw the line? Um, yeah, at the moment, I'm still working through it. <laughs> um, how did you end up getting into coaching? Like, what do you attribute to sort of gravitating towards towards coaching? Sure. So I've always, I've I've always just loved sport, just in general. Um, as a kid, I, I grew up in again, I grew up in rural, a rural part of North Carolina. Um, I played just about every sport you can think of. But growing up, I where in North grew- Carolina. Sorry to cut you off. Oh no, that's okay. Um, so I grew up in Denver, North Carolina. It's um, it's a suburb of Charlotte, so we're probably 20, 20 plus miles or so away from downtown Charlotte. Um, you know, my my I think the population of my town was less than five thousand people. My graduating class was pretty small. Um, Which direction? But anyway, uh, north, north. Oh, okay, so you're towards Blowing Rock and. Uh, no, 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 no. So Blowing Rock would be a little bit more, would be kind of like more like North Western. I believe we are more like directly like North, maybe a little bit East. It's off of a, it's called Lake, like Lake Norman. It's a, it's a big lake out there, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, so yeah, I grew up as, um, and I I was always at, I lived by a, a local community center and baseball field. So like you could catch me every day that there was a game there, I would either be working the press box or, you know, working the scoreboard. Uh, I just loved being there and, and watching how everything was done. Uh, same thing with growing up and playing baseball. Like I was never the best at every single thing that I did, but I, uh, you know, I, I worked, I worked as hard as the best people could, I, I believe. So I was always really interested in the, the, int- the intricacies of the sport itself. Um, and to see how that I, that I could apply that for both myself and other people. So I actually went to school with the idea that, Hey, I want to be a coach one day. Um, and I remember my freshman year at UNC Greensboro. So I, I ran with, um, well, I didn't run with him, but Paul Chalimo was on my, my team, um, you know, Olympic medalist in both 2016 and 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he told me one day just because he we would go for easy runs together and he'd say, he said, Dylan, you might never be the best runner, but you could be one of the best coaches. And I've just never, I've never forgotten that. Um, because it's true. 
you know, it's true. Like I might never be, I might never become the best runner in the world. And I'm fine with that, but I believe that, you know, I could work with people and I could learn, you know, I could become educated in the sport and, and with people enough to where I could help some of the best people. Um, not necessarily the best people in running, but just, you know, people in general, like professionals, just the, like people who work every day, you know, it's the, the people who get up and have a passion for what they do, not necessarily the people who are the fastest in the world. That's great. And you said that at one point, just real quickly, you, Jack did a little bit of a stint in Brevard, um, not too far from Asheville. Um, and you had said that you had maybe, or you were thinking about going on a recruiting trip there because of him or I forget. Yeah. I think I just read that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Jack, um, so the Jack Daniels formula was the very first running book that I <laughs> ever read. Um, and I, I just, I, I, I can't remember how old it was. I was maybe 17. And Man, I was fascinated. I was fascinated. In high school. <laughs> I know. Same, same. I mean, we didn't either. So like, like, my, my high school, my high school program was, um, you know, it, it, we had no clue. I, you know, we didn't run very much, but my coach was incredibly passionate and one of the best people in the world, but like small school, you know, like we just, Hey, we ran hard and that's just what we did. But, um, I loved, I read Jack Daniels running formula amongst other things. And I, I saw that he was coming to Brevard college in North Carolina and I was like, well, I just read this guy's book. Like, I, I believe everything that he he's, he said here. Like, I'm I'm, I'm completely committed. I want to go run for this guy who, like, at the time and like like as far as I ever knew, was was the best coach in the world. Like, I wanted to go run for him. Um, and so I reached out to him, and that you know I, I wasn't getting any recruiting offers or anything like that. I wasn't that good in high school, but I I thought I was fast enough and could had the work ethic enough to be able to, to walk on somewhere. So I saw he was coming to Brevard and I reached out to him and I wish I still had the email, but he sent me the longest email of just here's, here's, here's what we are going to do. And here's who you are going to become. And wow. it, it was like, you know, who, who knows how much, like, like if he sent that to everyone, but you know, I read that and I was just like, that's that like, this is it. This is where I want to go. So I went, I did go on a recruiting trip there. Um, and I actually didn't get to meet Jack, but I found out that he wasn't planning on staying at Brevard. Mm. So I was really, I, I didn't want to commit and, uh, and then to lose, uh, to not have him be coaching there by the time that I arrived. So, um, I actually went another, uh, another direction, but unfortunately did ended up <laughs> getting, to meet Jack when uh, I worked a couple of the Run Smart retreats. That's right. That's right. What did Dylan? Real quick, what did you run in high school for a mile? Just out of curiosity. So I ran four forty four, I believe, um, and I think I only did that once. I think I may have only broken, or I've only I think I've only broken uh, five minutes. I only broke five minutes in the mile, maybe two, two or three times. It wasn't very much. Yeah, I sense that. So I just wanted to to put that out there, not to put you on the spot, but that's mm -hmm. that's pretty inspiring, man, for a lot of high school runners to 
you got two-time Olympic trials qualifier. And um, I mean, many people cannot break five minutes for a mile, you know, but in terms of kids who look to continue running with those times, it's probably not a big percentage, you know, that want to pursue collegiate running and potentially professional or qualify for the Olympics at that. So that's pretty incredible, man. Uh, Thank you. That's a whole nother episode to get into. Yeah. Yeah, of course. What happened <laughs> from that point on, <laughs> I want to dig in, but um, we got to close with you. You mentioned 214, 215, like trying to get there. And I'm curious what in your mind, how do you get there in the next year or two? Um, why are you optimistic about the sport and things to come and, and how are you going to, you know, make adjustments. I think as coaches, we're always looking for what are the adjustments you talked about individuals and things like that. So I want to hear like, what, how do you continue to improve at this point? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great question. Um, for myself, I think that means that I need to put the marathon behind for a little bit and really focus on getting faster. So and this is an uncomfortable point for me. And especially for a lot of those that I work with, like most people I work with, you know, they went straight to the marathon. They've always been marathon runners. And so was, you know, and I think one of the, the biggest changes and biggest differences they've been able to make was that they decided to, Hey, spend two or three months and focus on getting faster go run some five K's and 10 K's and, 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 and really try to improve your capacity for speed and power. And you know, that usually nets a better marathon performance, especially, um, for those individuals. And I, I'm no different. So I think that I can't get away from that too long. Otherwise the limit at, of which how, how fast I could potentially run a marathon, um, it becomes less. So I think that if I can improve my operating speed, um, you know, how, how, how smooth, how fluid, how easy economical is, marathon pace, you know, or how economical can I run for a 5k or her, or even my threshold paces, um, marathon pace will eventually also fall in line and become easier at a faster clip. So I'm going to spend the next few months trying to get into some shorter road races, maybe even jump on the track. Um, you know, as, as much as I don't always love it, um, I find it as important and at the moment, I'm not, I don't have any marathon on the schedule. So I'm most likely not going to run another marathon until next year, I'd say, you know, probably maybe even Houston again in another year. But I think that I need to take this time to get faster over some shorter distances so that when I go into that marathon block, I'm already at an elevated part of training. And that's what I did last time. Um, that's what I did leading up to Houston. And I do believe that my fitness and my ability to run all my workouts and my training better, greater, um, was, was, that was, that was the reason for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, like when I, when I get into the marathon training block, I don't have to do too much. Um, I don't think I need to change too much. I think I need to keep doing and, and, and focus on the plan that is given to me. Um, and it's, you know, really just a really slow, gradual process, um, or progress from, years and years and years of, of, of training. I think the, the training that I did two years ago led into this year and then this year is going to hopefully lead into next year, two years from now. Yeah. You've put that, that accumulation is, is huge. And when you say 
um, shorter races. Do you mean as short as 5K or shorter, 10K? What, in your mind, where, where will the focus be? Yeah, um, I'd say mostly the, the 5K and the track, I would say. Um, I, I might even try to run, jump, run in run a, a 1500 or a mile at some point, just, just, to just to see what happens. Um, but yeah, I'm going to try to get into a couple of five Ks and then maybe even a road racer or two somewhere along the lines. It's just when you train for a marathon for so long, you just, there's so, these big blocks of time where you don't really race too much. So I think I need to get back to, to racing, getting uncomfortable, challenging myself in a different way so that I can, be prepared for that next big push in the marathon again. I'm curious, I, um, when you go down in distance with the VDOT equivalent table, so you're, you're 217, 26, equates to a 1419 5K. So when you hear 1419, are you like, yeah, that's a reasonable goal? Or is that a big challenge for you? to run the equivalent going down because of the, the type of runner you are. I'm just curious. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. I, I'd say, I'd say normally we work the opposite way. You know, I think, I think my marathon time would probably end up being the fastest time out of all my times. But if you use that two seven, well, potentially what I believe that I'm capable of. Um, but if you use that time, like I ran, I ran a 1421 last year. So I think it's pretty close. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that was, that was almost, that was almost spot on from like marathon to 5k. Um, you know, what, like I still have to, you know, kind of prove to myself that I'm, you know, I am the marathon runner that I believe that I'm capable of, but yeah, when you look at it that way, it's like, Hey, that's pretty, that's pretty close. So, you know, when I look at running 215 and I see that, Hey, like may that hopefully that equates to a sub 14 5k. I mean, that gets me excited. You know, that's what I want. That's, that's the barrier that I'd love to break. Gotcha. So Getting to low 14, breaking 14, that's going to be huge confidence builder for you going back up. It would be, it would be, um, you know, an incredible challenge. And one of those, one of those things where it's like, if I did it, I'd be happy if I didn't ever had to do it again. <laughs> Dude, go do it. You've got a great coach, you got a great head on your shoulder, you got a great base. So um, just go do it, man. I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> I know. I know. it. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's all. That's all there is to it, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for all the insights, man. And, uh, we appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks, Bill. I've been over here.